in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is a one of my favorite movie watchers, Mary Guest, my wife. Mary, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. She's up from a nap, fresh off of a nap, so she's ready to go. She's, well, thank you for announcing that to power the world. Nap. Yes, that's right. And another fun thing is uh, we have a great guest who I'm excited on uh, the show with us today. Good friend from the land of West Virginia, Dustin Smith. Dustin, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm just happy to have a chance to talk. First time on a podcast, I take it, right? Yes, yeah, first time. Well, it's time for the podcasting world to get to know you and at, at the deepest level and really understand who you are and everything you stand for. And these three questions will probably do that. You ready? I'm ready. All right. As uh, if people at home don't know, Dustin is a father, and uh, you, your your son is now how old? Uh, he's almost two. He's 21 months. And you've got yet another on the way. Is this true? That is true. We're about halfway there with our first girl. So, what is the first movie that you're excited to show your children when they get a little bit older? Not necessarily a G-rated Disney movie, but like you're gonna have to wait a little bit, but you're really excited to show it to them. What what is that first movie you can't wait to show them? Um, well, I definitely want to show them the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, definitely start with the first one, but they're gonna have to be a little bit older to be able to have patience. That's something they're struggling to learn right now. Well, at least my son is. My daughter might have that naturally gift of patience. I don't know. That'll, that'll be remain to be seen. Uh, it's, it's twice the length of a regular movie, so yeah, they'll definitely have to have the attention span. Are you gonna go? Uh, you're gonna go. Uh, just you're not gonna go through the Hobbit first, right? You're just gonna go straight into the original trilogy. Yeah, well, that's kind of how I watched it. I started with Lord of the Rings, and I watched the Hobbit, so kind of introduce them that way. Okay. Yeah. Go chronologically how they came out. Um, so what is the first movie theater memory you have? Man, um, the earliest one I can really remember, I'm sure there was other ones, but it's the Super Mario Brothers movie, which was, looking back, wasn't that great of a movie, but uh, at the time, you know, I was just a young kid and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a classic. I don't know. I mean, what's uh, better than two plumbers saving a princess, so. Yeah. And then what is your favorite villain acting performance? Probably Javier Bourdain. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. From uh, No Country from Old Men. I mean, he's a pretty classic villain there. Oh, yeah, that's a great choice for villain. Yeah, I guess um, that that's a really, really tough one. But I kind of always liked Glenn Close's portrayal of um, Cruella DeVille. 101 Dalmatian movie wasn't necessarily the best movie in the world but uh i enjoy her performance in that so after i thought about it 
Interesting. Like, kind of props to her for bringing this sort of animated villain to life. Bardem was a great pick. He was actually also a really good villain in the Skyfall movies. Yeah, he's got a knack for it, and that that was a, that was a good choice there on the 101 Dalmatians going close. You know, I haven't seen the movie forever, but that you know, I remember her from that more than anything else. Yeah, me too. I think that was the kind of thing that could have gone wrong really badly, but she just pulled it off somehow. Uh, I'm gonna go with the uh, Margaret Hamilton though from The Wizard of Oz, uh, Wicked Witch of the West. Classic. Yeah, uh, she thoroughly scared me when I was a kid. You know, I think she's made a lot of children cry over the years. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> she's pretty mean. Uh, I mean, she's gonna get her and her little dog too. So. Yeah. Dustin, what is the last movie you've seen? Uh, it's probably Creed Two, and it was good. I liked it. It's not as good as the first one, in my opinion, but it was good. I have not seen Creed or Creed Two. How do they stack up compared to the Rocky series, or are they just kind of their own thing? Uh, no, it's a Rocky movie. You know, you got you got a rocket. It, it delivers what you expect. Let me put it like that. But the first one, there was more emotions to it. The the second one, the second Creed movie, though, there was a, a part. He has his first daughter. Not it's not giving plot away or anything like that. But he has his first daughter, and it it gets pretty emotional with me having a daughter. And I don't know. You just have to watch it. Absolutely. So today, what movie are we gonna watch today, Dustin? Pan's Labyrinth. All right. That's right. Pan's Labyrinth comes out in the year 2006. It grosses $37.6 million, placing it 82nd in the box office. Uh, pretty impressive, given that this is not an American movie. In fact, this is in subtitles. It's in Spanish. Uh, the movie that placed ahead of it was Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. And the movie that placed behind it was The Nativity Story. IMDb gives this an 8.2. Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it a 95%. They love it. And the audience score is a 91%. So really big reviews from IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. And that's not all the accolades that it got. It got awards for the Oscars. It got Best Makeup, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction. And it was also nominated for Best Original Score, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Original Screenplay. It also won a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. And it won a BAFTA for Best Film Not in English, Best Costume Design, and Best Makeup and Hair. It got three Goya Awards and eight nominations, and it got seven Ariel Awards and 11 nominations for that. So this movie was awarded heavily all over the world. Uh, Let's get together and figure out what your background on this was. Had you seen it before? What were your thoughts coming in? Uh, Mary, why don't you take this one first? Okay, I actually... um had the pleasure of seeing this movie in the uh, limited release prior to it being released in all theaters. So my friend just said one day, oh, I want to go see this movie this evening. It's only it's gonna, it's only going to be at nine o'clock on Friday and that's will be the last chance to see it. Based on the movie cover alone with Ophelia in front of the tree, it's a beautiful art. I said, absolutely. And so we went with her husband and uh, to the theater, packed theater, could barely find a seat, and had just an amazing movie experience, knowing nothing about the movie going into it. And I was really pleased when it got released, you know, a full release in all theaters on the, in the U.S., you know, maybe about a month later. So that was pretty exciting, because I think it's the only time I've seen a, like a pre-screening type of thing. 
how how very uh, hipster. You saw it before it was cool. <laughs> I saw it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Somehow yeah. other people knew about it too because it was a packed theater. Okay, so that's interesting. Word got around Word. somehow. Yeah. Uh, Dustin, how about you, man? What was your first experience with this movie? Uh, I saw it on Blu-ray uh, probably around 2009, something like that. And, you know, I, it's the same type of experience that I didn't really know what to expect going in. Like, I, the artwork looked awesome. You know, like, give it a chance. Why not? You know, I mean, I think it was around the time. Hellboy, I don't know if it's the same same time Hellboy came out, but it was the same type of animatronics and things like that with the creatures. I don't know, it looked pretty cool. So I, I gave it a chance and really enjoyed it. Interesting. So did you watch that one? Did anybody give you a recommendation on that one, or did this just you stumbled on it? Just kind of stumbled on it. Perfect. Uh, and you're and you were right. Uh, he actually made Hellboy two years prior to this. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And uh, for me, this is my first time doing this movie. So I watched it twice before this podcast, and I didn't know what to expect going in. I thought this might be uh, a little bit brighter in tone i i knew it was kind of a fantasy you know fairy tale so to speak but uh this was a lot more violent than i expected and i also did not expect the world war ii time timeline there was a lot of stuff happening in world war ii spain that i didn't expect so i got a lot that i didn't expect and i really liked very pleased even though Mary had seen it, she 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 kind of shielded me from knowing too much going in. So yeah, I was trying not to spoil anything for you. <laughs> she knows I'm very spoiler adverse. Like I just want to know whether I should see it or not, and the less I know, the better. Yeah, you don't want to ruin anything. You want to you want to have that first time experience, you know. It's true, but on that note, we're gonna to have to spoil this movie, and this is the part where I'm gonna tell everybody if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, I recommend going back and watching it. If you don't mind spoilers, then keep listening. But And if you've seen it, keep listening. We'll be back after these messages where we'll get into a plot summary and spoil it right away. Hello, I am Dr. Hugo von Schlugelman, number one ranked hypnotist and psychologist in all of GLOBE. Do you hear that, father? I am ranked number one. Maybe now you'll love me like my older brother, Otto von Schlugelman. Mr. Fancy Pants and his three Nobel Prizes. Calm down, Hugo. Calm down. Anyway, I am here to help you. I want you to relax. Good. Now you're getting very tired. And when I snap my fingers, you are now under my suggestion. You will now blink your eyes. And that means I have full control of your thoughts. You will do anything I say. I want you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Give the show a five-star review and comment. This comment will help others discover what you already know in your subconscious, that the Retro Movie Roundtable is the greatest podcast ever produced. Share the show with your movie-loving friends, and like the show on Facebook, and email John Russell and Brian at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Good. World-renowned hypnotist Hugo von Schlugelman. Big fan of the show, so. Dustin, why don't you take us off on a plot summary and remind people who haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth lately what happens in it. Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth, like you said, takes place in World War II era in Spain, and there's like a civil war going on, and Ophelia, who's kind of like, plays with your mind, she's kind of in between a fairy tale and real life, in real life, I guess her father died and her mother remarried to a captain on the fas- fascist side of the Spanish army. So 
she's kind of adjusting to that and as she's adjusting to that she's kind of learning who she is in the in this fairy tale also who is a princess of the underworld and the idea behind it where she's a princess in the underworld but she made her way back up to out of the underworld up to the earth and the light blinded her eyes and erased her memory and then she died so Ophelia is kind of the re- reincarnation of uh, the princess Mo- Moana, I believe is how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. And she ends up meeting a fawn that's from the underworld that's trying to... He ends up giving her three different tests to prove that she is the, pr- the true princess. And she has to complete these tasks in order to regain her throne, so to say, in the underworld and become immortal. And as all this is going on, she's also dealing with the real-life issues of a sadistic father-in-law. And her mom is sick, carrying the baby of the captain that she's married to now. And as a viewer, you're trying to decide the whole time whether it's real or what's real. So as Ophelia makes her way through the three tasks... She finds herself with her baby brother in her arms, talking to the fawn. And on the final task is... The, the fawn wants a few drops of her blood to open the portal to the underworld through this labyrinth. And uh, Ophelia, not wanting to cause any harm to her brother, or even, even just a few drops of blood is all the fawn was saying, which is a pretty sketchy character in itself. She refuses, and by refusing her, father, her father-in-law, the, the sadistic captain, he finds her and takes the baby brother back. I guess it's his rightful son. And shoots Ophelia, and as she lies there dying, and her blood drips into the the portal? maze of the labyrinth, and yeah, I guess it, the portal, correct? She's smiling as she's as she's dying, and it's because it shows like in the the fairy tale part that she's regaining her throne in the underworld. I don't know. That's just kind of where it makes you question what's really happening. Like, is this a sad story or is this a triumphant story? Is she truly regaining the throne because this was the last test and she passed because she chose to sacrifice herself for her brother? Or is she just dying and that's it? Is she dead? And it's sad because an 11-year-old girl got shot and died. It makes you, it makes you question. What, what was your take on that one? Let's go straight into the end then uh, since, you, since you finished on that. And by the way, good job on refreshing people. But uh, what was your take on the end, Dustin? Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I've seen this movie twice. The first time I saw it, I really felt that it was the fairy tale that, you know, that it, it was a happy ending, that she was regaining her throne, that she made the right choices and all of that. And then the second time I watched it, I was just kind of sad. I just felt like that, you know, as, as a child, that's what she was wanting to believe and that she just lied there and died. You know, it's, it's sad. So did you feel like the visions were an afterlife kind of? Uh, or or maybe a euphoria, you know. And then maybe as she lied there bleeding bleeding out, she was losing oxygen or blood, you know, and tr- struggling to breathe. So maybe she had a euphoria of thinking that that was real. You know, I, I don't know. It, it makes you guess either way. I guess you can flip a coin. Yeah, I think Del Toro kind of wanted you to think about that. I think he was really clever to give you a little bit of pieces of doubt. Um, I kind of liked how he, uh, there was that one moment, you know, as, as Vandal follows her into the labyrinth and 
Um, he sees her talking to the fawn, and the fawn's not there. And Del Toro talks a little bit of that about that specific nugget that he put in there, um, and what that meant when he did his um, director's comments. And he kind of put it in there to show that Vandal couldn't see the fawn, but that he meant that the fawn was actually there. I I the first time I watched it, I kind of felt like. Oh, this is fine. She's she's reaching the um, she's going into this other realm, and then they cut the scene in such a way that then you go back to seeing her bleeding again, and then I took it the first time as like, whoa, I don't think she's making it out of this, and I think that this is kind of like an, maybe like an afterlife kind of vision kind of thing, and then the next time I thought about it, then my my second pass through, it sat better with me because I thought to myself, you know, maybe her soul is what's really part of the underground realm and that she's left this body behind because they kept talking about how they were immortals down below and this human form that she's in you know doesn't really need to transition to that realm down there and we do see her in her ruby red shoes coming in to sit on the throne with her uh, parents and apparently her dad's old enough to be like her great-grandfather <laughs> Yeah, I think he's been around a while as the Lord of the Underworld. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I think one thing that made me believe more in that she really went back to the Underworld is because that happened when her blood dripped on the statue. I'm an optimist, That's so I want to see the best I in it. kind of <laughs> took it. I mean, I think I've gone back and forth a couple of times on how I feel about it, but I think that this is probably my fourth watch on this movie. I think that's how I feel about it at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I want it to be a good. I want it to be a good ending. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying it is. <laughs> well, you, you know, the other two trials that she goes through, are, they're pretty believable that she, she went through those. You know, it's like she goes through and does it in the timing, like the first trial with the toad. She, her dress is muddy and everything. She's all covered in mud from crawling down under that tree. Yeah, I mean, all that kind of goes along with really what the trials and the dinner that she was going to afterwards. Mm -hmm. So why, why not, why not the third trial? Why not that be true too? I think you're right. I think, I think that there was a point in the movie when the early part of the movie starts off, like the real world and the fantasy world are very separate and only Ophelia is transitioning in between them. But there's like a second act in the movie where the two worlds start to intersect with each other and they start to affect each other, uh, whether it be like, you know, the guy picking up the piece of chalk, uh, the captain picking up the piece of chalk in his quarters. Yeah. Uh, like, that wouldn't be true if it wasn't there. Yeah, because Del Toro goes into that a little bit in his comments as well. That's the moment when the, for him, that the fantasy world starts to bleed in with the real world where the fawn has given her this piece of chalk that someone else can pick up and hold uh you know the book that she has with her that writes itself that's in the real world or the or the or the big one being the mandrake uh the mandrake oh, yeah. yeah 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 and that that helps her mother out and when they destroy it it immediately has negative repercussions so should yeah. not have done that right I, I question like when she throws the mandrake the, the mother when she throws the mandrake root in the fire it screams you know you can hear it's little screams i wonder if anybody else heard that other than ophelia 
I'd like to think so, but uh, it's hard to it's hard to say. It's a good point because later yeah. in the movie we do see that Vidal does not see the fawn, which really threw me off because everything else has been intersecting with this realm. Right, right. I think that's one of those uh, like pieces of doubt that makes us question the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can see it seventy times, and I don't think I'm going to get totally clear on that because yeah. in my logic, everything everything is real. And that it's been there intersecting with our real world. And then he doesn't see it at the end. And I, I couldn't quite rationalize that. But I that. think it's really clever because would we be talking about it right now if we knew for sure? No, he did it on purpose. I just don't I don't understand it. Even even hearing him interviewed about it, I didn't get it. So um, he just said it wasn't an accident. So I, I have to take him at his word. Um, so, uh, Mary, why don't you actually... And to introduce us, there's a lot of players here that people aren't going to know, but just just to give credit where credit's due, uh, shall we walk through the uh, cast here? Sure, I can walk through the cast, and apologies um, for some of these wonderful Spanish names. If I get it a little bit wrong, I'm very sorry. Um, Ivana Bacaro um, plays Ophelia. Sergey Lopez plays uh, Captain Vandal. Vidal. Vidal. Maribel Verdu plays Mercedes. That's the nanny who takes care of her. Doug Jones, uh, which uh, some of us may have seen in the Hellboy series and in Shape of Water, um, plays the Fawn and the Pale Man. Arianda Gill plays Carmen, Ophelia's mother. Alex Angulo plays the Doctor. Uh, Manolo Solo plays Garcia's, uh, this is one of Vandal's lieutenants. Cesar V plays Serrano. Roger Castamajor plays Pedro, Mercedes' brother. Very good. And those are some hard names there. So, uh, Pedro being the leader of the resistance in the woods. Yes. yes. Well done, Mary. Well, well done. thank you. I apologize to these wonderful actors if I messed up your name i'm very sorry gracias so no bueno <laughs> so dustin I, I could i could be wrong but i'm assuming none of us have seen any of these actors before being that uh i guess they're mostly spanish actors uh, again maybe safe for doug jones but uh as an ensemble good good acting oh i thought it was great acting i mean all around from the, your protagonist, the antagonist, to uh, the child being your star, and she did a great job. I thought it was interesting that uh, Doug Jones was the only American on the set, actually, and this is the he was the only one who didn't speak Spanish, so he had to learn to speak Spanish, uh, not only for his lines, but for the other people's lines, so that he could pick up on the cues for what to do when, based on the other actors. So when you take that into account, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Although Doug Jones plays El, the Fawn, uh, and the pale man, he does not actually voice either of them. He uh, spends five hours in makeup getting ready for them, but uh, it's actually voiced by another actor as well. So uh, he has this happen to him in in the first Hellboy movie as well, where it's David Hyde Pierce doing his voice there. So uh, it's very similar in this one as well. One last casting note was uh, Del Toro, who's the writer of this, originally wrote the movie for an eight, maybe nine-year-old girl. And Ophelia, the actress who plays uh, her, uh, Ivana Bacaro, uh, she's 11 years old, but she was just so good that he went ahead and rewrote it and uh, 
made made an exception to let uh, a older and better actor into the movie. So good call, I'd say, wouldn't you? Oh, great call, great call. She's she's very fantastic. She's got a level of sophistication for her age. Um, I thought she was perfect. So why don't we talk about the creation of this film and the story because this is an original piece here. Uh, Dustin, what are your thoughts on Guillermo del Toro's uh, creation here? I thought it was a fantastic creation. I mean, for somebody to write this film, it's pretty amazing. Just one person alone. I'm a fan of of del Toro on almost all of his movies. You know, so he's he's creative and well done. It's well done. His casting is good. Yeah, I feel like Del Toro has a distinct um, fantasy feel in his movies, and um, the Hellboy movies kind of relate graphically into these movies. So I think he's, I, I see the style in him, which I, I really look forward to now. Uh, watching some interviews with him, he's quite uncompromising. He really wants his vision to come through, and he sacrificed a lot of money and this particular movie to not make it in America. Uh, He turned down more money, more than twice the budget, uh, to make it in Spanish, where he could have more control of an artistic license. He felt like if it was made in Hollywood, he would never be able to have the violence that he felt like it needed. He felt like it would have been a different story if he had stripped that out and made it more, I guess, accessible for everybody. Uh, Dustin... Do you think this is a good call, or do you think it would be? Would you think that this would be the same movie if you were to strip some of that out? Oh no, I think it was a great call because, granted, with a smaller budget, he still made a lot of money uh, internationally on this movie. So he made he made his vision. He he made the right call, and I mean, I wouldn't change anything about the film. And I think less budget, probably same profit. Good call. Yeah. Mary, what are your thoughts on Del Toro as a writer? Because he has written in every one of the projects that he's been on. Uh, he's a writer, with the exception of Blade Two. I I really enjoy how this story unfolds. Each plot turn is kind of driven by the instructions she gets from the fawn, and I think that's a really beautiful fairy tale like way to construct a story um and i also like how within that story you have these things happening in the fantasy realm but you have things that are in parallel sequence happening in the real world which relate to each other so it it became just such a a beautiful unfolding of events yeah, and uh, as mentioned, he did The Shape of Water, Pacific Rim, Hellboy 2, the first Hellboy movie, Blade 2, Devil's Backbone, which is actually the uh, sister movie of I'd this. I'd really like to see that uh, now that he talked about how it was kind of the precursor to this movie. So mm-hmm. I feel like I want to go back in his library and watch that movie. Yeah, I've never even heard of that. Uh, I hadn't either. It comes out in 2001, so it's it's uh, five years prior to Pan's Labyrinth, but it also takes place in the Spanish Civil War and uh, during World War II. And it is more of a ghost story than a, than a fairy tale, but it is uh, kind of its mate uh, and an extension of this movie, which I also would crave to go back and see it. So maybe someday in the future we can all do The Devil's Backbone together. Maybe so. Uh, but uh, Dustin, of these movies that I just listed off, Shape of Water, Pacific Rim, Hellboy, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Blade Two. 
these kinds of movies. Um, where does this movie Pan's Labyrinth rank for you in there? And do you see any similarities in terms of the visual style that he brings to these? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, definitely a little bit in the visual style. Um, I would say it ranks in the top three. Um, I'm, I, I like Pacific Rim, the first one, a lot. That's, that's just a great movie. I could watch that a lot. But um, definitely in the top three. Maybe the top two. It's probably the second right behind Pacific Rim. Unfortunately, I haven't seen um, The Shape of Water yet. And I'm really looking forward to that one, especially since uh, the stars Doug Jones, and he was so fantastic in this movie. Man, I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, I, I have to admit, after watching Pants Labyrinth, it's more than wet my appetite. <laughs> I don't want to watch all of his movies. I, I want to watch. I want to watch The Devil's Backbone pretty bad. Like that's the next one I want to see. But then I also do want to see Shape of Water. But uh, I, I, being a superhero fan, and I am a big fan of comics and stuff like that, uh, Hellboy Two and The Golden Army is still like I just I love it. Uh, yeah, it's great. You know, it's disappointing though that they recasted. Um, uh, what's the guy that played uh, played Hellboy originally? Oh, Ron Perlman. Ron, yes, Ron Perlman. I'm kind of. I mean, David Harbour is cool and all, but Ron Perlman's the man. I am also sad to see it recast, and I'd like to. I. I mean, I wish Del Toro and Perlman would come back and do it again. I mean, he's got so much prosthetics on and the animation to make him look like Hellboy. Even if he's gotten a little bit older. I'd buy him as Hellboy still. I'm I'm gonna see the next Hellboy movie, but I really am worried that that's not gonna feel like a Hellboy movie to me if it's not Del Toro. Yeah. So, but I'll give it a chance. Yeah. As we mentioned, uh, after the first week in movie theaters in Mexico, plays uh, they had to put signs out that uh, reminded people that this is uh, a very graphically violent movie and that small children should not see it, despite its fairy tale type nature. Uh, as a parent, Dustin. What age do you think a kid has to be to be able to ingest Pan's Labyrinth? Because I think it's it, it's deserving of the R rating, wouldn't you say? Oh, certainly. It, it certainly is. Um, I mean, you don't get the curse words or anything, but there, it's it's violent. There's blood. There's very adult situations. Proper age? Uh, 16, maybe? Yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking 15. Yeah. yeah. That's about where I was. Yeah, I'm thinking a middle schooler might not be able to handle some of the scenes. Miscarriage scene in particular. That, that would be very, very rough to watch, yeah. Yeah, and uh, also the uh, the cheek slice. Whew. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mercedes, is she's cool, man. She's probably my favorite character in the whole movie. <laughs> uh, I wish you would have kept going. <laughs> that, I know. I was like... Stop. I was like... You could have ended it. Keep going. Keep going. Go for the eyeballs. I mean... Yeah. I know it's just a little paring knife, but I mean... Uh... Yeah, but seeing that movie, uh, and I think that I was sitting in a movie theater full of people who didn't know what to expect, everyone gasped. I mean, no one, when, when Mercedes uh, cut his cheek, I'm pretty sure everyone in the theater stopped breathing. <laughs> I feel like it's another one of those outtakes from like how Heath Ledger is in The Dark Knight, who said, you know, how I got these scars. Mercedes <laughs> cut my cheek open with a kitchen knife. <laughs> um, so anyway uh, it's also reported that Del Toro turned down uh, directing duties to the Chronicles of Narnia The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in 2005 to direct this movie uh, when you start to know that Del Toro is as um, I guess you could call it weighty or dark as he is or adult as he is is a good way of putting it I would say I can't even imagine him going after the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or any Narnia I, movie. I was kind of thinking the opposite, Russ, that I, there, there's some darkness in those books that doesn't 
translate to the movies because they were trying to make them too PG, I thought. So I feel like he could have added some depth that the yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of those movies when they came out. I think he could have added some depth and interest. Hmm, that's but, interesting. And I totally uh, agree. Are you okay? Okay. And uh, what do you think about this one then, Dustin? Because he also was offered uh, the third Harry Potter movie, The Prisoner of Azkaban. And he he also declined that one as well. And uh, again, the Harry Potter movies get progressively darker as they go on. Uh, would you like to see Del Toro have handled one of the uh, the Harry Potter movies? Well, I mean, it definitely falls into the skill set to do that. I'm glad he chose Pan, Pan's Labyrinth because it's so original. But, you know, it could have been. I don't know if he would have made it better because I thought Prisoner of Azkaban was really good. But I don't think he would have heard it. I think it, it's it's in a skill set. I think he would have done well with it. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, though. Yeah, it's hard to say that about a movie, you know, as, as good as Prisoner of Azkaban. So... That one's hard to imagine being different. Well, I mean, he said if he was going to do one, he probably would have wanted to do the first one because uh, he was not particularly happy with Christopher, or not Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus's version of it. He said the first book has a lot of darkness in it, and that doesn't come through with the movie version of it. And so uh, he felt like that he would have liked to have seen that vision that J.K. Rowling had brought more literally through there he thought the orphan story losing his parents and being with the dursleys was such a traumatic experience and he felt like he would have brought more weight and i guess again more of that adult nature to it uh so the first one's so magical i, I again I, I i guess i am kind of a sucker for the bright happy story so uh, and he <laughs> is not one to deliver that so but fun story though the alfonso curion uh, the guy who directed The Prisoner of Azkaban, he is one of the producers and co-creators on this movie, Pan's Labyrinth. And so Del Toro and Curion have worked together a fair bit. And Del Toro talks about Curion being somebody who is more interested in the light, the levity, the, the happiness, and uh, somebody who would be more suited for something like Harry Potter. And he said he does not take interest in that. He is interested in the darkness and in the violence, and he just feels like there's more interest there as a writer and as a creator. So, uh, But the two of them go way back, and I thought this was kind of fun. He said uh, they go back to when they were, I guess, teenagers and stuff like that, and he said, uh, when you meet a friend when you're 15, it, uh, there's a little part of you that when you stay friends for a long time, you'll always remain a little bit of 15 years old. And so I, I love that saying, and unfortunately John and Brian aren't here today, but uh, I, I can say that... It's true. Anytime you get back together, there's a little part of me that's 13 years old still. And so. everyone um, talks like South Park characters for like three hours. <laughs> hey, he's P3. <laughs> it's true. It's true. South Park came out like when we were uh, 12 years old and the perfect age to get it. So uh, we, were, we were all hooked right away. And so, yes, we all talk that way. And we all know when we're quoting it. We all, we all quote things constantly and nobody knows what we're talking about. So... Uh, <laughs> so what you mentioned the poster mary uh mm -hmm. for this movie talk about that a little bit because there's an interesting it, it's kind of reproductive isn't it 
the the symbolism of ovaries and fallopian tubes is kind of throughout the movie and that's definitely very present in the tree and that's also similar to the fawn's horns so anytime you so when you start to actually break it down and look for it in the movie it's the symbolism is everywhere um and you know it's it's um the image is ophelia i don't know if you've seen the movie poster um Ophelia actually walking toward the tree that has that um, reproductive shape um, and that's part of you know her entering symbolically this um, process of rebirth rebirthing her soul into her intended form of the princess so there's so much just in the graphic of um, of that image and of course when I saw the image and thought it was cool it's just it's a very beautiful graphic and you're wondering okay this girl's walking toward this very (laughs) creepy tree and but to actually break it down from a graphic design point of view there's so much hidden in this um as well she goes in in through a tree in the movie yeah to reach the frog to feed it rocks and to blow it up (laughs) and to make it turn into a giant pool of vomit with a key in it (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> how brave of her to reach into that pile and pull that key out that was kind of cringy oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> uh anyway the uh so it's kind of interesting uh justin talk a little bit about the character of captain vidal we've talked about villains in movies that you were talking about like is he a good villain uh what do you think about this character uh, he was a very good villain um you know, he's like the, the stepdad that nobody wants. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to bring this to uh, to attention. Um, I read on Wikipedia that Sergi Lopez, they got to play him, Captain Vidal, mm-hmm. I believe is, is how you say it. Um, it said that when Del Toro approached him about this position, that uh, he was mostly known for melodramatic or comedic roles in Madrid. Really? So it's yeah. I've never seen him as a comedic actor. I, I can't mean, see him. I don't know him from anything else. But um, you yeah, you never guess it in this movie because he's such a serious, serious person in this movie. He's like based around the the stopwatch that his father gave him when at the time he died, and that's always really focused on with having a good son, carrying on the name, and yeah, he's, right, he's very just intense, isn't he? Yeah. Even when he's not saying anything, just his expression is very, uh, very unsettling sometimes. I think it's very interesting. Uh, something I noticed in the second time through, he's always very caught up on doing everything for himself. He's very polished. He's always cleaning his boots himself. He's going to sew his own stitches himself. He's going to do it because nobody else can do it right. He's going to be, he's very caught up in every little thing. And, and Narcissistic kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he, just has a degree of like he's so caught up in the small things is what I was kind of saying like that he misses the bigger picture and in a way that's perfect for somebody who's in his position you know he's so caught up with just the rules and trying to enforce these things and being you know that just kind of comes with being fascist that he kind of misses the bigger picture of he doesn't even see the people in his own house and the pain that he's causing and the division that he's causing so um it, it's really what makes him such a dangerous character. It's a is level that he's, of detachment. Yes. 
And I think that he's so caught up with the little things and having to have everything be just his way, and more than just being OCD, uh, being so controlling and uh, so concerned with his legacy and his rules that, uh, I don't know, I guess that's what you want in a Nazi bad guy villain character. And they, to me, they, they took that and personified that through all of his characteristics of every little thing that he was doing so well in the movie. I also just, his eyebrows were another thing, like he, he just had this stern expression. And uh, Yeah, I feel like I was going to get grounded every time he had a, like, every time he had a line, every time he had a line in the movie, I was getting grounded. If it didn't have the, um, the subtitles, I probably would have went to sit in my room. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's, good, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so let's talk about the juxtaposition or the comparison of the real world versus the fantasy world. Mary, what was your thoughts on how these things, again, I, I to me, they started separate and then they start to infuse with each other visually. How does that? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of different points to bring up with that. But one that first comes to mind is the lighting, the way the director has chosen to do the color palette where everything in the real world is very subtle and green. And then when you're in the fantasy realm, there's a lot of reds and warm colors. And that is, Del Toro talked about this a little bit as well, more of the womb imagery um, and even kind of starts introducing those red tones with um, the view of the little brother which is a very very warm visual you mean in the womb as a little brother you know that's in the womb when they were telling the backstory about the princess yeah 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 ophelia's telling her little brother in the womb this, this story about the princess and you see the, the baby and, you know, it's very red-orange sort of glow. And then that sort of red-orange glow carries through to places like the Pale Man's Hallway and Feast. And um, there's sort of red glow that starts to come in toward the end of the movie when all the explosions are happening. And that is the real world kind of clashing with the fantasy world. Something I noticed is there's a kind of in-between as well. Dustin, talk about the pit that she finds in the labyrinth and kind of how that's a middle ground between like the fantasy and the real world because like, it has its own visual style. It's different. Yeah, it's definitely different from like the staircase at least down there and then the, the tree, I believe, is down there. Mm-hmm. I guess it would be kind of like a purgatory <laughs> per se. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. Uh, that's where she met the fawn at. Mm-hmm. And there's this stone sculpture down there that kind of looks like it's from an ancient time. It looks like the whole world's dropped out from up above. Everything's blues and greens, dark blues and dark greens. And it's this transition from the world above. It's kind of interesting how that's the gateway to the other world. and To the underworld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's strange that they portray the underworld as a a good place in this movie, a place like a desirable place. You know, you think you read most things about the underworld and you you like your Hellboy idea and fire and creatures and things like that. And, you know, the only creature it really shows for the underworld throughout the whole movie is the fawn. 
Hey, Gimli takes great uh, exception like to that. The... the Mines of Mordor are very, very uh, hospitable, he says. So. Mines of Mordor, yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, so anyway, I, I thought it was interesting. Something that Del Toro does with his camera. I don't know if you happened to... Did you notice this, uh, guys, where he he basically... I like turns or pans i think panning is a better way of putting it he pans the camera and it goes behind a vertical and it cuts to another scene so like he'll go behind a chair a column a tree um even down under a floor to go to the fantasy world like and it cuts and so a lot of these cuts basically jump to another part of the story so you could be in the fantasy world in the tree and then cut behind uh, the tree trunk then you're following the captain out riding in the woods. It's really interesting how the transitions are. They're abrupt. Yeah, and they're, they're kind of, But there's some interesting movement of the camera that's like a, um, a, a rotating sometimes. There's a scene with uh, Mercedes and the doctor going down the... He's going down the stairs, and you rotate around Mercedes as the doctor goes down the staircase. And it's kind of an interesting... Um, sort of off-putting feeling when the camera and the scene that doesn't have a whole lot of movement the, when the camera has that much movement. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering, Dustin, did you perceive any feeling that was different that comes from the camera work and or the lighting or the colors? Like I said, uh, uh, we talked about having warmer colors in the fantasy world. What are some of those other differences in, and uh, between the real world and the fantasy world? <laughs> I was thinking about the the color and the explosions at the end and on a you know watching this again you know to make my notes the as we're watching uh, the captain follow her into the labyrinth at the end and when you look at the captain you see the front of him coming toward her and then there's these explosions behind him the contrast between the the dark greens and blues of the forest and the yellow glow of the explosions kind of almost makes it feel more like a painting and i kind of felt there were some of those shots if you were to just you know click pause it might feel like it was a piece of artwork rather than a piece you know rather than something that was on camera and you know it wasn't of course it's all filmed but there's something about the color and the saturation that makes it feel more like a fantasy. And for me, that was more kind of emphasized the idea of those two worlds bleeding together when I was looking at the captain and not sure if he, is he is he approaching mm -hmm. the fantasy world as he's moving through the labyrinth. I noticed on my second time through that uh, there's a certain point in the movie kind of when I talked about Act 2, when the fantasy world starts to affect the real world i i saw instances where the tones the warm the warm tones of the fantasy world were starting to enter into there's more scenes with fire that just give it a warmer glow there's a scene where vidal is like talking to uh people like troops trying to get information and there's this fire behind him and it starts to represent to me he's sitting at the front of this banquet table and he's like the monster in front of the banquet table full of food so and there's fire around him exactly in the yeah. shot. exactly and so the the tones of the pale man is saying like there's a monster behind this table and then there's another monster behind the table in the fantasy world which is like this ogre the pale man kind of thing and i saw a direct connection 
between the visible the vis- I don't know how they set how they stage that. And similarly, there's a key uh, that's really important to uh, Ophelia to be able to open the box of the pale man. But there's also, in the real world, a key that's really important to be able to access the munitions and the medicine and the supplies. And so I thought it was interesting how everything that's happening in the fantasy world seems to be paralleling both in the story as well as in the visuals of going back and forth. And it's this interesting pendulum of like real versus fantasy. And there's, there's, a, there's a fantasy version of each of these things. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Does that make sense? I don't know. No, it definitely does. Like you were talking about the um, the monsters, the head of the table, the the pale man versus the Vidal at the uh, banquet. You know, I didn't put that together, but yeah, that is it's it's pretty good. It's pretty close. Uh, oh, and the other one being uh, Mercedes pockets a knife, and they 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 go out of their way to really show you that Mercedes keeps this knife on her. Again, that's a big moment where she can stand up to Vidal with that knife, but Ophelia also has to get a knife from the pale man because that's part of the ritual and that's like part of her second trial. So um, it's just an interesting uh, rhythm, I would say, that's established between like there's something in the fantasy world there's something in the fake world. And so I, I would venture to say if you watch this more, you would start to see more of those parallels between the two realities. So I'd say you're right. It was kind of interesting. I thought uh, she's actually not very good at accomplishing her missions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who, who who eats the grapes in front of the pale man. Why? Why? Doesn't seem like a good idea. No, she doesn't. She doesn't give her brother over for the blood. She doesn't. Uh, really, the only one that she succeeds in in any shape or form really is the first mission. So uh, she gets to go back uh, in a way. I guess they said that they were testing. No, her. the the she she succeeded in the last mission because that was the test for her to not give her brother up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, that was that's yeah. fair. Yeah, and okay. you know, in the in the in the second mission, the second test, um, the fairy is telling her to put the key in the one lock, and she says no to the fairy and puts it in another lock. Obviously, she chose correctly, but you know what? What made her? You know why? Why? Why say no to the fairy and choose other one? How does she know that? I, I don't. I don't know. You know, it's crazy. He, uh, Del Toro in the commentary on the DVD was saying that he thought it was important that she take the grapes. I can't speak to the lock as much, but he was saying that it was important that she took the grapes. For one, she was denied dinner the night before, so she is like starving, like literally she's hungry. Yeah, she's hungry. Um, and for two, part of her character is based in courageous disobedience in the face of, you know, this authoritarian regime. And so the fascists that are there are basically commanding you follow the rules and so she is brave to stand up and to think for herself and that's part of what gets her into the fantasy realm at the end as mary pointed out you were right to remind me that um that was the test to make sure that you stood up for what was right yeah i think it was a test of leadership kind of and that served her well in most cases but that sort of defiance to take the grapes maybe not the best idea but it's true the pale man did try to eat her yeah and i think i remember del toro saying something about that was also when she picked the left key um the box instead of the middle one that was also showing that defiance in her that she strong-willed and she goes with her gut 
whether or not that's what she's being told to do. And it takes courage. I don't know about you, Dustin, but I wouldn't have, uh, I, I would have backed out of the first case. I would have been like, I'm out of this tree, man. I'm not, uh, you know what? I'll just go back home and hang out with my mom. I don't know. <laughs> the, yeah, she's no, she's a brave girl. I like terrifying it. place under the tree. I liked it more after I heard Del Toro say that, um, that that act of defiance and her going with her gut was why she picked the left, um, the left box rather than the middle box. I thought that was kind of cool because if she hadn't gone with her gut, then her she would have failed the trial. He calls it the importance of disobedience. So, yeah, don't tell my kid that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till they're out of the house. Um, <laughs> yeah, college. <laughs> the other uh, thing that I thought was interesting was uh, you were talking about womb-like imagery uh, in the story when they were telling the story about the old kingdom and you see the fetus in uh, the womb and then uh, all these soldiers and stuff are in these tones of red and golds, warm tones. Uh, the pale man's palace, or you could say lair, is very much like this. He can. Uh, he said that it has... The hallways are bent like again. He he's in, he's interested in this fallopian tube kind of concept. Kind of that's, the imagery is kind of reflected in the shape of the curved hallway that's very red mm-hmm. in tone. Yeah, and so I just thought that was another interesting uh, reproductive illusion. And then you mentioned one. What was the thing about the book? Right before her. Uh, mom almost has a miscarriage she she goes in the bathroom to read the book and instead of getting a message in the book she gets a splatter of blood in that uh, fallopian tube shape um and that's how she knows something's wrong and then moments later her mom screams yeah in terms of special effects what were some of your favorite moments in terms of movie magic dustin that you thought like man that looks really great or how'd they do that Oh man, uh, definitely the fawn and the uh, and the pale man were pretty interestingly interestingly terrifying characters. I guess, I guess they were a mixture of, of um, CGI and animatronics and makeup and and all that good stuff. I'm not sure, but their detail and the way they moved. I mean, it's 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 on par with Hellboy. I don't know as much about the pale man. But I can tell you this much. The fawn is actually, again, Doug Jones uh, with this prosthetic horn apparatus on his head. And it weighs 10 pounds. If you listen to the kid in Jerry Maguire, the average head, weight of a human head is 8 pounds. So that's heavier than an average human head. And they had to put it on last. Yeah. And so he would wear these legs that Del Toro was absolutely insistent on doing for real. That's not CGI. And he puppeteers the bottom of the feet, but he's wearing like green tights and they remove him from the image when it's done. So there's computer work to cut him out, but everything that you actually see in the movie for the fawn is real. That's amazing. That's something that this day and age that I, I miss in movies because they're just replacing all the animatronics and stuff with the CGI. Everything's CGI. Then it's getting better, but you know, I mean, the the animatronics is awesome. He's, I guess I'm a purist. I, I like when there's actually a physical object on the set. Yeah, some some, some movies like Return of the Jedi feel much more real to me than um, movies that are made now where it's all computer generated. Yeah, I and I'm with you. The pale man was just terrifying. The, the very premise of putting your eyeballs into your hands and then like 
you know, just the saggy skin on it and how white it was. And it, it was human in, in some ways, but just not human in other ways. Great, great costume design on that. I'm, I'm with you. One funny thing that was interesting. Do you remember how the Mary, did you remember how they talked about how they couldn't have any fire or explosions, but they needed them for the set and mm-hmm. how they, how they handled some of those? Yeah, he was talking about how they, they he was not allowed to use any sort of fire, and with scenes with explosions, he used a trick where he would use dust and clay th- kind of thrown up into the air with lighting sh- shining through it to create some of those beautiful explosion scenes, and I would have never known. They look gorgeous. Yeah, with an air cannon. He uh, also mentioned that the explosion, like the fire and the explosion and stuff like that had to do with like refracting light off of like metallic surfaces and stuff like that. And he had learned to do that through theatrical plays. So all of the fire and pyrotechnics that you see in this are not real. Like, or they're lighting, I should say. They're real. They're not computerized, but they're not actual flames because they were shooting near a preserve. Like you couldn't go into like a national forest. Like you couldn't go into Yellowstone national park and set a fire. So yeah, that wouldn't be a very good idea. Yeah. And then one last one that I wanted to mention about the fawn. I don't know if you caught this Dustin cause I did not, but apparently the fawn gets younger throughout the movie. No, I had no idea. Yeah. He has white hair in the, First time we meet him, he looks like he's got moss growing on him uh, when you meet him in the pit. And then later he comes to visit her and he his features look smoother and his teeth are not as crooked. And then again, when we meet him later in the labyrinth, when he's got the knife and he's like, hey, how about you let me, uh, I just need a little bit of your this blood. <laughs> and, you're like, and you're like, that's a big, that's a big knife, man. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, the knife size of the baby. <laughs> I just need a little bit of blood. <laughs> How about a thumbtack? Can we come up with some kind of compromise here? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you got one of those like you test diabetes with. You prick a finger, you know, and you get the drop. Where's that at, Fawn? I, I know, right? Like, I mean, was that in the drawer that like the fairies were telling me to get? Because I can go back and get that right now. I mean, yeah. So. Just like, like bite somebody. Just bite him real quick. Just a little, this little nibble. Yeah. Uh, pa- maybe a paper cut. Um, so, yeah. I was kind of. I mean, he's like made of wood, right? He's got wood and moss. And right, right, stuff, right. Don't you have a splinter we could use? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The knife's out, though, guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, when he's when he's that uh, uh, fawn, his eyes are bigger, brighter. Um, his hair is also red. Yeah, his hair's red. So. And yeah. I kind of thought that he looked very different particularly in that last scene and i thought uh, am i just misremembering how i remembered him from earlier in the movie and del toro pointed it out that he did that on purpose so that in the most critical moment of her decision making he was the most beautiful version of the fawn to try and trick her yeah like uh the bad proposition seems better when it comes if i look better and friendlier it's like uh you know, it's like putting on this like suit and then propositioning you with this horrible thing of like, you know, it's like, you know, I'll buy your house for a dollar. <laughs> you're, you're like, no, my house costs more than a dollar. It's like, I wore Are this nice, sure? I wore this nice suit. <laughs> what about a hundred pennies? <laughs> no. Come on. <laughs> So, <laughs> but I, I wore a tie and everything. Look at it this way. Come on. 
<laughs> so, uh, interestingly, uh, Del Toro said that he came up with a lot of these things, uh, that he has dreams uh, as he's awake, like kind of lucid dreams, and he had these as a young man. And so he saw some of these monsters, such as the Pale Man uh, and the Fawn, and particularly the Fawn. In uh, when dreams, he was, yeah. Yeah, in dreams as a young man. So it's pretty wild that they stuck with him, that resonated with him. Dustin, is there anything? I mean, we all imagine things as children, but is there anything that you can remember like that as a kid that like sticks with you to this day that you either created a monster under your bed or like a friend an imaginary friend that was like mythical or something uh did you have anything like this no no i, I didn't and i'm thankful i did not have this fawn following me around <laughs> or a creature like that and if, if i did i wish i, I would have been smart enough to create a, a good movie and make a lot of money yeah, that's, and that's probably why it's special because, again, I might have had imaginary friends, but uh, they, they certainly didn't look anything, anything like this. Yeah, I guess my dreams usually are more about sort of fantastic places, not necessarily um, creatures or characters, but, you know, locations that are, you know, not, <laughs> not of this earth. <laughs> Oh, that that'd still be cool. Yeah, maybe I should make some uh, write some of this down. <laughs> yeah. Make a movie. About you should. It. <laughs> I mean, sell it to like the Avengers or something. Be the next Planet Titan. Right. Hey, Stan Lee unfortunately has passed away. There's a huge gaping, bleeding hole in the comic book world that needs filled by somebody. I mean, when you stop and think about all the great ideas Del Toro or or like Stan Lee had, it's just it's amazing how much one creative mind can churn out. Really. So it really is. Gosh, it's amazing what Marvel's turned into. It and is. rightfully so. Their movies are great. Um, and I'm glad Stanley got to live long enough to see people enjoy uh, his creations in a whole third generation. Like I said, that was probably the third generation of fans. And he got to pop in and make all of his little cameos. So, yeah, it's incredible. Even I don't know if you saw into the Spider-Verse or not, but he's got a cameo in that. It's pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it got an Oscar for Best Animated Movie, and uh, that's unusual for a superhero movie to come away with an Oscar, so I'm I'm definitely going to be picking that up out of the Redbox as soon as I can. So, Hey, Redbox, sponsor the show. We just plugged your product. so <laughs> you Might as well. Dustin, what do you think about the 1944 setting? Like, uh, Do you think it was important to the story? Did you like the fact that we had this fascist conflict between i didn't know much about the civil war in spain but i looked it up afterwards and it's it what an interesting place to set the story i thought how about you what do you think about the time setting i love the time setting of the the 40s 50s civil war area or era of uh of spain there and world war Two and all and it, it was great um I, I love old stuff so the the older setting definitely uh the ruins to me felt particularly magical. That is kind of bridges the uh, the fantasy world with the real world because if you were to just go visit ruins like that, it would feel pretty magical just by itself. Mm-hmm. And that made it feel like it was a during wartime too. Like they're like in the early going in the very very early scenes, they drive past some more torn environments so that kind of immersed you in the feeling that like there's a conflict out here in this country and they're going after these rebels in the woods. I did a little bit of looking up on it. So apparently the Spanish state under Fran- uh, Francisco Franco did not originally join the Axis powers uh, during World War II. But 
uh, Franco did write to Hitler and joined the war in uh, June of 1940. And so Franco's regime uh, regime supported Germany with the Blue Division fight specifically on the Eastern Front against the Soviet Union uh, in recognition of heavy assistance from Spain uh, had received uh, from Germany and Italy in the Spanish Civil War. So pretty much the, the Nazis and the fascists of Italy helped out the, Spa- the Spanish uh, fascist movement and uh, therefore it was kind of like they were owed a favor to come send them uh, help later. So I never heard about Spain in history class at all. And so I just thought this was a, sometimes movies do that to you. They, they turn you into another chapter of history that you wouldn't have otherwise. Credit to Del Toro for doing that. Yeah, I never, never heard about Spain much in the, in the uh, World War II either, you know. Yeah. Dustin, do you have any look for this moments? Anything that you thought was interesting that just didn't fit before and just wanted to get off your chest? <laughs> I did read something on Wikipedia because it said that Del Toro didn't like apparently the subtitles on, I guess, Hellboy. Or no, I'm sorry, not Hellboy. Um, what was the prequel called? The Devil's Backbone? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, he didn't like the subtitles. So he, I guess he said it was uh, for people who want the story told to them or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to be more personalized, the subtitles of Pan's Labyrinth. So he actually wrote the subtitles for this movie itself. Interesting. So I found that interesting. That is cool. He, You know, that's congruent with what I heard, too. He said that uh, he doesn't like lots of dialogue, and he prefers to show you as a director. And I don't know about you, Dustin, but I do, do not normally get excited for movies that have subtitles in it. And I somehow didn't find this one as much of a chore to watch with subtitles. Oh, definitely, man. Uh, yeah, I don't make it a habit of watching movies with subtitles, but there's some of the most memorable memorable movies I've seen have you, you watching subtitles. And you, you don't remember reading the movie, you just remember the awesome stuff that happens. That's a good point. That's how it was for me on this one anyway. Mary, look for this. I think it was uh, really interesting, and I had hearing Del Toro talk about it, confirmed it. The fairy was a prototype from the Hellboy movies, and I kind of I'm not sure which movie I saw for maybe I actually probably saw Pan's Labyrinth before I ever saw Hellboy but you can see how um, this fairy reminds me just a little bit of the tooth fairies in Hellboy which are those way were, more creepy yeah, those were nasty but oh, I yeah. could I could almost imagine this little fairy transforming again and becoming the Hellboy tooth fairy <laughs> Like, this is the pretty version, and this is the real version. (laughs) Yeah, I see that connection for sure. Uh, My look for this moment is going to be Stephen King actually attended the screening of the film and sat next to Guillermo del Toro. And in that, uh, del Toro said that uh, he saw Stephen King getting uncomfortable, gripping in his chair and kind of clenching and squirming when the pale man is chasing Ophelia in the hallway. And uh, this made Del Toro exceedingly happy to uh, scare the master of uh, frights. And he said that this is uh, this this reaction of seeing Stephen King is ju- it, it is right on par with him winning an Oscar. Was is one of the best moments of his career. So, Damn. I guess that would be kind of a big deal. Scaring Stephen King is not easy. How does this movie affect you, Dustin? Uh, you know, it was a different effect both times. Oh, you know, I was pretty happy mood after watching it the first time but the last time i watched it i was a little i was a little sad i'm not gonna lie i think he likes that conflict that you have i think if you watch it a third time you might have an another a whole nother way of taking it potentially so 
Um, yeah, and I, I plan on doing so. Mary, how does this movie affect you? I think personally it appeals to my darker side. It appeals to that feeling that we've all had of there's more to this reality just beyond the corner of my eye that I can't see. And I think that movie gives me that feeling almost when, you know, you're a kid and, you know, the, the light burns out in the closet and you're afraid to walk in there because what if you're walking into another world? And I think that that's, that this movie recaptures that feeling for me and I love that about it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be on a similar lines with that. It reminds me of being a kid, being alone in the woods, perhaps in the water of a lake or something like that. And then for some reason, you just have this sudden isolated feeling that you're alone and like you run back into home or wherever it's bright out and like maybe the clearing or something like that or maybe you swim back in and you're like i don't know like you just get this sudden notion that there's this loch ness monster and i don't know in this lake that you're swimming in or something like that and um you're right this movie kind of says there is and I like that, and it's 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 it, it is neat, and even as an adult, it's fun to play with that notion. So, and I think it's also good to point out that the from a villain point of view, we're dealing with you know an evil regime, but is that sort of portrayed similarly to you know the evil that one might face in an underworld you know the evil's very real whether it's in an underworld or whether it's right here on the surface of earth affecting everybody so i think that kind of that highlights the duality here mm -hmm. in my mind dustin you ready to hand out some awards yeah who is your mvp uh mvp you gotta give it to ophelia man i mean 11 and gave it a great performance yeah, Ivana Bakaro is mine as well. Ivana Bakaro. Yeah. yeah, she was great. Uh, Mary. Yeah, I guess I, guess I took a, a different approach here, and I, I think that Del Toro has to be my MVP. I think his attention to detail is the thing that makes this movie so special. So yeah, that's he Del did write it for me. He did come up with all the imagery that makes it special. So, uh, no, that's a great choice. Very good choice. Who's your best supporting actor, Dustin? Uh, definitely Mercedes. I forgot what her name was. Maribel Verdu. Yes. She, uh, I don't know. She was a great act actress in the movie and probably my favorite character. I am stride for stride uh, in line with you so far, two for two here, because uh, I'm picking Maribel Verdu as well. I just really liked her sense of like she cared for this child, and that came through. And then I also got the moments where she was afraid, but bravely proceeding to go out and help her brother or to stand up to Vidal. A lot of emotionally charged moments and smaller role, or I forget how many, how far down she was buried in the cast, but uh, really good job. Since I gave Del Toro my MVP, I do kind of have to give um, my best supporting actor to Ivana Baccaro um, as a Ophelia. Um, she's just fantastic and, you know, I guess as is the MVP of the actors <laughs> put mm. it in that words but I want want to give a shout out to Maribel Vardu Mercedes was just fantastic portraying this really strong female role and um in a time when women were just there to serve food and clean house and she was she, she was really awesome I'm surprised nobody picked Sergio Lopez uh, he was great too Captain Vidal 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And being that nobody did, I have to at least give him a nod then. So. Um, I mean, that means he did his job well. People absolutely. hated him. So in that role, you want to be hated. You know, one thing that's interesting about Sergio Lopez is that uh, he came on the, the scene and Del Toro really told him how to do everything. Like He's like, take three puffs of your cigarette, shave your face four times. Now I need you to turn this way. Very instructive. And uh, Sergio, as an actor, was not used to this at all. He's normally like, read the script. Here's your take on the character. Roll the cameras. And so he said to Del Toro on the first day, he's like, are you just you going to do this every day? And he goes, and, and uh, Del Toro's like, yeah, and you'll get used to it. <laughs> and he said, and you know what? He did. And by the end, his he like was so mechanical. He was so able to operate into that. And so good actor, as you mentioned, Dustin, somebody who's normally known for comedy, apparently, and for other lighter kinds of roles, was able to transform himself into this and then work with a director that's in a very different style than he had ever done before. Because that conflict that could have emerged from that, that sounds like something that would like break an actor. But he adapted and he worked well with it and uh del toro is very proud of him yeah and in the commentary del toro actually complimented him a lot and pointed out moments where he had come up with um a way of doing a scene that del toro hadn't thought of that was actually better or he added a little something to the character um that so del toro seemed very complimentary of him mm-hmm. in his in his uh, commentaries but Miller Verdu still gets my pick. So, uh, Hidden Gem, Dustin. Well, well, we'll go with Vidal, Sergio. They definitely say he's he's the Hidden Gem. All right, I like it. I'm gonna go a little bit deeper into the catalog here for maybe underappreciated. I loved the guy who played uh, Doctor Ferrario. The mm-hmm. uh, yes, Good. Alex Anglo. I liked. He just had this again some sense of. I'm doing something that's wrong. Well, I should say I'm doing the right thing, even though uh, it will cost me everything. Mm-hmm. And I that carried through on him, uh, that that courage. Yeah. I just find those kinds of characters very inspiring. So. Same thing with Mercedes. There's just so much courage. They're both part of the rebellion, mm-hmm. but they um, are brave enough to sort of stand up to the captain and actually be in his world so that they can help the rebels. That's... Yeah, that carried through for both of them. Who's your hidden gem, Mary? I picked Doug Jones. I think that he just yeah. so masterfully brought life to the fawn and to the pale man, and I cannot imagine this movie without him. Yeah, I, I want to see more of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had to recast somebody, uh, who would it be, and perhaps who might you put in their place? And don't feel the pressure to make sure they speak Spanish. You can just kind of ignore that and pretend that it's a whole other production. But what one character would you like to uh, recast, Dustin? Oh, man. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know if I'd recast any of them. Okay, pretending it wasn't in Spanish? Yeah, just put in, like, what actor do you feel would most benefit from a recast? And let's just pretend language is not an issue maybe the guy who played the doctor i mean i thought he did a great job mm-hmm. but i could see there there could be a lot of different actors they could uh probably do a great job in that role also anybody come to your mind like who's who's one person you might put in the role of the doctor uh, you know I, I don't know maybe pierce brosnan all right james bond see, i like it see, See James Bond doing some doctor work? You know what? I feel like the resistance would get uh, a, a big boost with James Bond on their side. So I like it. Uh, Mary, uh, who is your recast? Um, I, I wanted to recast Carmen, Ophelia's mother. 
I didn't really necessarily feel like I saw a great connection between her and Ophelia. Um, you know, I think I think that Ophelia had a little bit more of an on-screen connection with Maribel Vardu than um, than than the Ari- woman who played her mother, Ari- Arianda Ari- Ariadna Gill. Um, I don't know if that was an intentional decision on. Um, on Del Toro's part or not, but I felt like I didn't feel the warmth from her that I kind of wanted to feel. That's very hard for me to try and put someone else in the right place, but then Russell told me what, um, <laughs> what, what oh, y- you're okay. reflecting the sentiment, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I, I picked Ariadna Gill as my recast as well because she just didn't convey the pain that she visibly should be in and she didn't convey the warmth to her child that she's supposed to have or maybe even the nervousness that she should have to make sure that captain vidal is happy so i i chose to put numi rapace uh she's in prometheus and she's in the uh foreign versions of the girl with the dragon tattoo in there yeah after russell said that i couldn't i, I had that stuck in my head and i couldn't come up with my own <laughs> So sorry, Russell, I'm taking your recast. It's okay. Maybe it's a distressed pregnancy from Prometheus that put her into my mind because uh, she's she's in Prometheus and she's uh, got an alien inside of her at one point. So um, we see a distressed pregnancy in that in that movie as well. But she's just a tough lady and, you know, she this this woman's a survivor. Her husband's dead and she's for the good of her child. She's sucking it up and marrying this fascist dude just so that they can eat and survive and i i didn't get survivor off of this character i think numi would do that for me so yeah i agree she is a survivor that's true i could see maybe like um ashley judd in that role mm-hmm. I, I like that oh, one too. yeah that, that sounds great yeah somebody with a little bit of toughness yeah uh best scene what is your favorite scene dustin um, well, you know, one of my favorite scenes, other than, of, of course, um, Mercedes going gangster, um, is at the end, after Captain Vidal's walking out, he's got the baby in his hands, his son, and he's meeting the uh, the rebels, and he hands the baby to Mercedes and asks her to make sure he knows what time his father died, and Mercedes' reply was that, that the the child will never know his name and then the her brother shoots him dead i mean that, that was a cool scene she didn't get like he didn't have time to respond back or argue or anything it was just that boom you're done yeah she didn't even have to think about how she was not gonna do that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah fast forward to that kid asking like later is like who's my dad like oh crap i should have come up with something his name <laughs> was groucho yeah. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the scene from uh, How I Met Your Mother, where uh, Barney's mother tells him that uh, Bob Barker was his dad, <laughs> and so he watches the. Mary, what was your favorite scene? That sequence when. The fairy first guides Ophelia through the labyrinth and down to meet the fawn. That was so magical. When I saw that, I had no idea what kind of movie I was getting into. And it was just like, wow, this is, this is, we're in a fantasy land. And that, that sticks with me. Well, 
I hope it didn't show my cards too much, but uh, I like the scene with the pale man coming awake and popping those eyeballs in and chasing after Ophelia and putting his hands on his forehead so that he can see. And uh, it is... It's just so good, and it, I, I'm, I'm gripping my seat too. And the door starts to close on her. It's it's one of the most tense moments of the movie for me. Um, and then there are a lot of tense moments. Uh, and so I'm gonna go with the the pale man interaction. That is definitely an adrenaline inducing scene. Yeah, Dustin, what's your best shot or what's your best image of the movie? Best shot, best image. You know, Ophelia crawling underneath that tree was a pretty cool image, pretty cool shot. Because it's just gross and gritty, and she's like digging in deep. Bugs crawling on her. Yeah. Oh, gross. Hey, what's your best shot? What are you putting on the back of the box if you're creating the back of the box? Oh well, the, the, on the back of the box, I wouldn't change the front of the box. That's for sure. I, that's really hard to pick. There's so many beautiful shots here. Um, I did like toward the end of the movie when you're seeing, I, I mentioned the scene before where you're seeing the glowing yellow light from the explosions behind the captain as he's approaching and, and chasing after Ophelia and something about that scene makes it seem like we're now in the fantasy realm and I think that that has to do with the lighting, the coloration, um, the intensity, the music. I think that that sort of I could make a still frame of that, and that could be just um, just a wonderful shot with that yellow glow behind him. Another tense moment. My best shot's going to be again similar to the scene that I just said of uh, when she draws the chalk door, and then it opens up, and there's this big room on the other side of it, and she looks in. That's my that's my best scene. It's just a magical moment. I think that's one I loved a lot too, and I loved the fact that. You're 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 in the hallway. You're looking back at Ophelia mm-hmm. crouching in the little door, and you can see the attic through, um, through the little door. Mm-hmm. And the floor of the attic is you know six feet higher than the floor of the hallway, and it's just this beautiful moment of um, Del Toro using architectural space to convey this bizarre relationship between the fantasy world and the real world. That's right, Dustin. If you had to change one thing. If you're Guillermo del Toro, what one thing are you going to change in this movie? Maybe change the fact that it was only a limited release in the United States. Okay. You know? that, 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 that counts, yeah. Uh, means a lot of stuff going well in the movie, for sure. And Mary, what is your change one thing? I would like to have seen when, when Ophelia goes and her soul returns to her kingdom... I would have preferred had her mother been Mercedes. And the reason I feel like that is I feel like Ophelia had a very strong connection with that character, but I also feel like wouldn't it have been beautiful if Mercedes had been there, living there for centuries, waiting for Ophelia to return. Hmm. That if she was also continuing to reincarnate. Um, and I know that might change the plot a little bit yeah at first i said no but the more you're saying it, i think i like it yeah that's interesting so yeah that's my change one thing uh my change one thing is going to be the toad or the sorry it's a frog uh the frog and the tree i feel like we got this really awesome fawn we got the awesome pale man and when i went back and looked at it the second time 
It's a big frog. And it's out of scale and it's unexpected. But wouldn't it be cool if uh, Del Toro had another really neat dream as a kid and <laughs> and had another really interesting creature for us to interact with? So um, Yeah, maybe it wasn't a, a, a normal frog. Maybe it would have some... Yeah, maybe a frog spider or something like that. Or like, you know, a squid frog. I don't know. Like, I, I need something more than just a frog. I expected it to be bigger. I mean, when I first talked about it, you know, this frog that lived under the, under the tree, like it was, it was, it was big, but it, you know, but it was like a Great Dane toad. And the fairy too, that turns in from a bug into a fairy, like that's a pretty cool transition. So, I I just want one more really neat creature, and the frog didn't do it. For oh, me. or maybe if the frog transformed into something else. Yeah, other than a pile of vomit. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, that was a cool transformation and all, you know. It was cool. It did look good. Uh, best quote, Dustin. I'll probably just have to repeat the the one that I, I talked about at the end of the movie, the um, the Mercedes quote there. Your son will never will never know your name. Uh, it's a great one. Good call, uh, Mary. Best quote. I I like the moment when Ophelia asks Mercedes, Mercedes, do you believe in fairies? And she replies, No, but when I was a little girl, I did. I believed in a lot of things that I don't believe in anymore, and I think that's a, maybe that quotes another one of those re- thing. One of the reasons I kind of thought of that. Well, maybe if Mercedes had been from the underworld, maybe that would have liked that hmm. a little hint of it there. For me, I'm going to go in. Captain Vidal uh, sets this up, and he says, "You could have obeyed me to the doctor who he uh, you know shot." And uh, he says, uh, "Sorry, sorry, but right before shooting him, Vidal says you could have obeyed me." And the doctor uh, says, but Captain, to obey just like that, for obedience sake, with no questioning, that's something that only people like you can do. And mm, that's a good one. I really love that line. And I, I don't know, that speaks to my personality because I have a tendency to back talk and to <laughs> not take the rules uh, for what they are. So I identify heavily with that, but also it's a heroic moment. So love that scene. Guys, it's time to give our final rating on this one. Dustin, five-star scale, what do you rate Pan's Labyrinth? I give it a four. I really enjoyed it. It's a great rating. I, I, I'm with you on that one. I, I'm also going to... Man, we are just so in stride for this one. You, you nailed so many of the things that I said right before I did, so I'm a, I'm a four as well. I wasn't trying to take anything from you, man. <laughs> but that's okay, man. The, the, the thunder's all yours. You're the, you're, the, you're the guest star on this one, so uh, Mary. I'm going to give this one a five. Okay, interesting. So this one, this one hit all, checks all the boxes. It for checked, you. yeah, it checked all the boxes of well, what I'm looking for in a movie. Yeah. Well, that sounds awesome, and maybe we'll come up with another great movie next week. Are you ready to help me figure out what movie we're going to look at next week? Sure. Next week we're going to get some swashbuckling. There's been a request from our viewers to get some swordplay, and uh, you ready for some swordplay movies? This sounds fun. Option one. The Three Musketeers from 1993. The three best of the disbanded musketeers join a young hothead, would-be musketeer named D'Artagnan to stop the Cardinal Regilu evil plot. Option two, The Mask of Zorro from 1993 as well. A young thief seeking revenge for the death of his brother is trained by a once great but aged Zorro who also pursues vengeance of his own. And option three, The Princess Bride from 1987. 
While homesick in bed, a young boy's grandfather reads him a story of a farm boy turned pirate who encounters numerous obstacles, enemies, and allies in his quest to be reunited with his true love. These are some really great choices. Um, I really enjoy Princess Bride and Mask of Zorro, so I think... I'm going to have to go with Three Musketeers on this one because I haven't seen it. And I'd very much like to see this movie. Uh, lots of people have said, you know, recommended it in the past. So, yeah, let's let's go for a chance to see the Three Musketeers. All right. All right. Three Musketeers it is. Uh, Dustin, thank you so much for coming in the show for your first time. We hope you had fun. Great, great time we had here. Oh, it's been great, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the, the opportunity. Well... Thank you, Mary, for filling in for uh, Brian. Brian's in sunny Hawaii right now. Can you believe that? Oh, man. Yeah. I tried to get him to like bring us all on site uh, for like to do a <laughs> yeah, podcast, podcast in person. Yeah. yeah. Flash in. Flash I don't in, know. He said, he said there's not money in the budget or whatever. I don't know. Oh, whatever, man. <laughs> Even after you won that award? <laughs> I know. I know. We won the Oscar for Best Podcast. Uh, so... so uh, <laughs> Thank you, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Tell us whether you like this movie or not. Comment on the uh, Facebook page. We Give us a like there. Every week we post uh, what you want to hear from the movie. We're getting a little bit of feedback on that. We really enjoy that. want to see more of that. So talk to each other. Talk to us. Uh, we'll definitely respond. And then uh, also subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those iTunes ratings help the show get found by others and help grow the show. So we really, really appreciate it. That's the number one thing you can do to help the show. And then, as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Mary? I'm going to end this on a quote from Hellboy. Watch it, boys. She's on fire.